Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? I like how the movie we watched today shows government bureaucrats basically having the most exciting jobs possible on the planet. Jets sitting around the globe, getting into car chases, issuing presidential directives. I mean, when I worked on this stuff at the State Department, the most exciting day I had was Taco Tuesday. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear topics interact. There is certainly a plethora of movie podcasts out there, but we're glad you found the one, the only one, where you have a team of experts watching movies about nuclear weapons and then proceeding to needlessly overanalyze them. My name is Tim Westmeyer. I am a nuclear analyst slash enthusiast who has studied the history and policy of nuclear weapons to varying degrees in government, think tanks, and academia. While this sounds exciting, it's also a curse, as I can enjoy a basic action movie like a normal person if the movie happens to try to portray nuclear weapons. Fortunately, my co-host Joel does not seem to have this problem. This is Joel. I am a movie enthusiast who knows nothing about nuclear weapons or nuclear energy, but I like a good movie and I like a good chat afterwards. Today we're joined by a guest host, a fellow nuclear nut, my friend Tristan. Thank you, Tim. Uh, it's fantastic to have uh, both you and Joel uh, here at, at my apartment uh, this afternoon as we watch uh, the U.S. Park Service uh, helicopters uh, ceasefully, uh, you know, a patrol looking, uh, looking for security incidents as... Uh, uh, tourists gather on, on the mall uh, this weekend, uh, and you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, my 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 research and, and my current work uh, really focuses on looking on at the the spread and impact of technology in, in the nuclear age. So sometimes when I when I watch a movie like The Peacemaker, I can't help uh, but but think about you know its accuracy, but also I think more importantly, its impact on the larger public and ultimately movies, big blockbusters like The Peacemaker. Uh, that's that's really what they're designed to do, have a have a larger public statement and impact. Thanks, Tristan. Uh, so let's get started here because we've got a lot to cover. We went back to the 1990s and watched the gem that is known as The Peacemaker, 1997 action thriller. Uh, as the logline of this movie likes to tell us, in the year of 1997, every nuclear weapon in the world will be accounted for except one. Ooh. Well, the director for this movie, Mimi Letter, uh, she was her, this is her first major motion picture, but she later on directed Deep Impact, uh, another one of those um, action movies that involves the destruction of the, the planet, uh, but also a number of great episodes of one of our favorite shows, The Leftovers, and uh, another ep episodes of ER, which is, I guess, a George Clooney connection, and uh, one episode of The West Wing that was pretty good. So, just random fact, uh, Deep Impact was one of the highest grossing movies by a female director until those pesky Twilight movies came out uh, many years later. The writers uh, for this particular movie, it was a husband-wife team of Leslie and Andrew Cockburn who wrote the 1997 book One Point Safe that this uh, particular film was based off of. And I definitely recommend that. Uh, it's like a Bob Woodward-style take on Russian nuclear weapons and after the end of the Cold War, where those weapons were and how easily they uh, 
could be stolen by uh, terrorist or rogue commanders in the Russian forces. Uh, if you can humor me, humor me for a second, there's a description of the book, uh, One Point Safe, that I think is worth play, uh, mentioning to place this whole uh, discussion in a certain context. So here it goes. So you thought that the end of the Cold War erased the threat of nuclear annihilation? Well, think again. The world is a more dangerous place than ever. In 1993, in the Ural Mountains, two nuclear weapons disappeared from a weapons plant, and it took three days for officials to notice. What is the West Wing doing about this? These questions are at the heart of this story. A chilling tale of the Russian mafia, international terrorists, and a small heroic band of Washington bureaucrats struggling to make sure the West comes to terms with the threat that it faces. So that lays out uh, a sense of what happened uh, with this particular film and where it came from. It has a pretty big cast. Uh, George Clooney uh, stars as Lieutenant Colonel Tom DeVoe. Uh, this is one of uh, Clooney's early works, uh, right after his uh, more TV work with ER, uh, and transitioning from that to more of the big movie hits. Also in this movie, Nicole Kidman, who uh, played the character named Dr. Julia Kelly the chair of the anti-nuclear weapons smuggling group at the National Security Council, and I guess a former scientist of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. So this movie uh, was a pretty big hit at the box office. Against a $50 million budget, it made $110 million worldwide, was the number one movie when it came out that opening weekend. But in terms of the critical response, it didn't go over as well. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it 2.5 out of 4 stars. He noted his disdain for movies with red digital readouts on ticking bombs as a as a jarring cliche that survives because they are a quick, cheap device for manufacturing phony suspense. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it gets about a 41% with an audience score of 40%. And we might talk later on about maybe why that was the case, because we don't necessarily feel that way about this movie. Um, we're more along the lines of the New York Times review that came out at the time, uh, where they liked it enough and particularly noted that uh, the DreamWorks logo, because oh, this is one of the first movies that DreamWorks produced, uh, the one with the kid on the half moon and the quote was it fished out a decent catch for their first movie but a year later dreamworks released some more probably classic and known uh, movies like saving private ryan and ants but uh the movie was uh, screened by steven spielberg to 140 nsc staff and one one fun note here uh the music for the movie the score was produced by han zimmer who also did the score for Broken Arrow, the, another movie we did previously on this podcast, and one that we'll probably do in the future, The Dark Knight Rises, that has a nuclear bomb plot at the end of that movie. Although I think it would be fun, because of all the movies that uh, Hans Zimmer has done, they should put out some kind of like compilation disc, uh, or some sort, of, uh, some sort of mix dealing with nuclear weapons in, in action movies. That's actually uh, on my Spotify playlist. That's, uh, that's what I listen to when I'm, when I'm doing my research. Maybe a good workout mix? And swallow the Hans Zimmer and nuclear tunes. Yeah. So as we do, or we try to do, uh, before we get started with the plot of each of these episodes, uh, fair warning, even though this came out in 1990s, we're going to spoil pretty much everything. So spoiler alert, uh, we wouldn't need to be able to go into great detail, otherwise there's no way we can get super critical about this. Joel, you're our, our resident movie expert, why don't you take it away? Let us know what happens in this film. The movie actually begins with not too much detail as a as an audience. I think we've in many ways gotten spoiled by some of the action movies that just hit you over the head with plot details right at the beginning as the credits are still rolling before you even know who directed the film and you've gotten into it. Um, but so the it's a slow burn 
pun intended, perhaps, uh, in the first couple minutes. Uh, what we do see is the movie starts off with Russian troops um, preparing to transport um, what clearly become uh, recognizable as nuclear weapons via a train uh, somewhere in the former Soviet Union uh, in Russia. Uh, you hear a reference that uh, they're transporting these nuclear devices because of START treaty obligations uh, that they're regrettably doing because of the United States. Um, like in the mid like in the mid 1990s, it seems like so. Um, I like this shout out to start. We'll talk about it a little later on, but it was it was seemed like it was after the start treaty and um, still during the Clinton years. Clinton is mentioned as the president here. They didn't really make up another precedent for this. So as the troops are loading the nuclear weapons on a train, and at this point we still don't know exactly where the weapons are headed. Uh, we have a Russian general that arrives, clearly seen as a senior uh, military official, uh, very uh, imposing on all the junior military officials, uh, military soldiers. Uh, they uh, depart, and then uh, as the train is traveling, we see a what looks like some kind of mercenary or special forces team actually uh, um, intercept the train, uh, kill all the soldiers, and actually take all the nuclear weapons uh, before actually detonating one nuclear weapon uh, to actually cover their tracks, uh, cover the tracks of their robbery. Yeah, that was a spooky scene. I mean, all of a sudden it's, it's, it's blackness and then people turn on their night vision goggles and there's red lights everywhere. Uh, the movie jumps right on top of you. I'm pretty sure I had a nightmare about that when I saw this movie for the first time. So, you know, that when, when, when I watched that opening scene, I mean, to me that is so classic in terms of uh, an opening action movie scene uh, from the 1990s. Uh, the year before, in 1996, uh, The Rock opened in a very similar way. Excellent movie. Uh, and so I feel like a lot of these, a lot of these action movies in the 1990s, you know, the, the opening action scene really makes heavy use of, of, of these sort of special forces operations uh, in, in which there's lasers, there's night vision goggles, there's kind of men and in ninja pajamas, <laughs> uh, jumping around, uh, and it really kind of sets the tone that there's something, something unknown that's going to be unfolding. But that's something that I've seen kind of drop out, I think, after the 1990s. But during that period there, um, this, this, was, this was something that seemed to happen quite frequently. Yeah, I think we'll definitely try to cover The Rock at some point, even though that's not a nuclear movie. Uh, it deals with weapons of mass destruction, and it's it's a Nick Cage movie, so it'll be fun to cover. I just have to find a, a good person who can come on and talk about chemical weapons. Those are fun to talk about. Okay. We, uh, we see that uh, a nuclear device was detonated. Uh, other nuclear weapons have been stolen. But still, as an audience, we don't really know what's going on. Uh, by the end, uh, or by the point at which the, the train... Um, blows up and the nuclear weapon is, is detonated. We understand that the general, the high-ranking official, is somehow involved. He was the one who arranged for the special forces team to, to steal uh, the explosives, but we don't exactly know why. And we have that really sad scene where it's just that, that old couple in Russia, um, one guy who just you know went outside to use the outhouse, and then he comes back inside. Uh, as they're going to go to bed, they hear the train crash, they hear... Um, explosions happening and they go outside just to figure out what's going on and minding their own business and a nuclear bomb goes off in their backyard and we see them vaporized. It's a pretty uh, stark reminder of what could happen uh, when these things go off, especially if you don't know what's going to happen. It's very probably very terrifying to be right there. 
So the world wakes up to the fact that a nuclear weapon has gone off and obviously the various uh, uh, elements of U.S. and other um, domestic intelligence agencies, military um, agencies and departments, they wake up to the fact and there's general upheaval in terms of trying to figure out what went on and who's responsible for it. The movie then introduces both Nicole Kidman's character, Dr. Julia Kelly, who's the chair of the anti-nuclear weapons smuggling group at the National Security Council. And then they also bring in George Clooney again, playing Tom DeVoe. Um, kind of a, they don't provide too much detail, but generally this uh, military character who's got a lot of background in Russian activities uh, and Eastern Europe uh, generally. So, uh, Kelly is kind of a, a, a go-getter within the organization. She's very um, sharp, very smart. Essentially, Kelly is given the uh, lead for actually tracking down who actually is responsible for uh, taking the nuclear weapons. And DeVoe is actually uh, assigned to her as a military liaison. So an interesting, odd couple of sorts. I will note that DeVoe's character, I think this is, this is critical for something that comes up later, uh, is is a colonel? L- lieutenant colonel. Is he a lieutenant colonel? So is, uh, he's he, he's either an O five or an O six. So he's either a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, uh, which which is important later in terms of how he interacts with a lot of his superiors. And in terms of Julia Kelly, Nicole Kidman's character, so based on a book, this movie, one point save. One of the major people that the authors of that book interviewed is who Nicole Kidman's character is based off of. Surprisingly, in ways that are very down uh, to an exact detail, and other ways that they change for various, I guess, plot reasons. But it's based on a NSC staffer who was there in 1994 named Jessica Stern. She worked uh, at the NSC for one year. Um, she was an, a Council on Foreign Relations fellow who was assigned, that's a think tank in D.C., who then got assigned to the White House to work there for a year because she had experience working on the Russian nuclear stockpile, trying to track down uh, what where those things are and, and where they're coming from um, and where they're going to go when they didn't really know where all that stuff was. So she was a Russia-speaking analyst um, because she had spent some time in Moscow there in 1982, so right in the middle of the, the Cold War. But she had earned her – she was 37 years old when this happened. Um, when she actually worked at the NSC, she earned an MA in, uh, at MIT in chemistry and a PhD at Harvard, not Princeton as they mentioned in the movie – must have been a, quite of a burn when she watched that in terms of the rivalry between Princeton and Harvard. But um, she got a, a PhD in public policy and worked for several years at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory outside of San Francisco, where she helped to do all that stuff with the Russian stockpile. And she was actually in the press for quite a bit during that time, which might be why she got some attention, because she was involved in that anti-nuclear weapons smuggling group uh, and was able to find some highly enriched uranium in the trunk of a car in Prague. So that got very popular in the news and probably started people thinking about these things on a, on a larger level. So I'll go in, in detail later on, but her team at the NSC um, was heavily involved in getting President Clinton and the rest of the national security apparatus in the United States interested and aware of the threat of loose nuclear weapons. At the time, much more interested in U.S.-Russian relations than they were in dealing with the collapsing Soviet system. So certainly DeVoe and Kelly are an odd couple, but you start to see them initially working uh, together uh, as they're still trying to piece together what exactly happened. Uh, not, not great at first, right, Tristan? 
they kind of had a, an awkward start to their relationship. Yeah, I think I think the contemporary phrase that gets used a lot is mansplaining. <laughs> uh, George Clooney is, is very heavy-handed in, in essentially mansplaining to Nicole Kidman uh, that he knows the way the world works, that he understands uh, bad guys, as he calls them, uh, and that she doesn't exist in the, quote, real world. She exists in the Washington, D.C. Beltway bureaucratic channels, and that he is the one that's going to explain to her exactly what's unfolding and why. Uh, and he interrupts her several times. And he also not only interrupts her, but he also, uh, even though he's a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, he actually uh, speaks back to uh, generals uh, that, are, that are in several meetings, which uh, is extremely verboten, uh, which was interesting to see in a movie, that there was absolutely no repercussions for a lot of his his actions and subordination. He's a he's a loose cannon. He gets things done. He doesn't do things by the book. He gets results, just yeah. like that. Uh, one quote that Jessica Stern had for George Clooney's character, she said, I've met a lot of George Clooney's, men with that personality type in special forces. Not anyone who would perform exactly those stunts, but I've met many unsung heroes who are working to make sure a nuclear bomb is never detonated on U.S. soil. She, I guess, must have been aware of, of what it was like because she came in working on the NSC as uh, as a female who in a very male-dominated field in the 90s. So probably that uh, is portrayed in the movie quite well. One of the things she says at the beginning is, make sure our, my military liaison can take orders from a woman. So I will say that although you know he starts out in this kind of heavy mansplaining attitude, I think you know her character essentially pushes back uh, quite a lot and demonstrates – uh, you know, you know. I think the first move that she she pulls is uh, is essentially kind of responding to him in Russian, I believe. Uh, and so I think she really kind of demonstrates that she has the intellectual prowess, but also the practical kind of knowledge uh, to be his his equal uh, in this in this game, if you will. So as they start to figure out each other's methods and kind of style, um, they essentially start trying to piece together what happened with the nuclear explosion. They get a manifest of the soldiers that were on the train, and they figure out that the general, who had been so ominous and imposing on all the other uh, younger soldiers, was General Kodorov, which, as uh, DeVoe's character explained, he was pretty much a kind of a superstar in the military uh, establishment in Russia and would never have stooped so low to, to spend time on a tr- uh, train like that. I think he actually referred to him as uh, as if uh, one of the, Ivana Trump was riding the subway. It's just not something that you would uh, typically see. So from that, they look into it and say, why would he have been on that train? At this point, he's presumed dead. They connect with other people in the intelligence community, find out that uh, the General Kodorov guy is apparently still calling his mistress in Europe uh, via a Russian satellite phone that they've been tracking. And so all of a sudden they start to piece together that you know one at least one person who's supposed to be dead is actually very much alive. So DeVoe touches base with his Russian contacts uh, who then point him to a – front company uh, called uh, Kordek, which apparently is in charge of various mafia and ex-KGB activities, including smuggling. They point him in that direction saying uh, that internal Russian contacts can't uh, investigate that company because of their connections to the government, but it might be a fruitful um, opportunity to uh, investigate uh, how these uh, Russian uh, weapons were were smuggled out of uh, the, the train. 
yeah, it's like a big plot point that they have to go through the Russian mafia to rent a truck because they didn't have the number for U-Haul and they couldn't find a, a truck through them. They had to get the exact truck and the only place in the world to be able to do that was the Russian mafia in Vienna to get a truck in the Ural Mountains of Russia. That's a pretty good business. So I think this, is, this gets to one of the points that, that Roger Ebert kind of raised in terms of some of the flimsiness of the plot, which was if, if these guys are going to be sophisticated enough to steal nuclear weapons and to get into an actual weapon system to detonate it, that being able to procure some, some sort of uh, uh, you know, ambulance-type vehicle or just a truck shouldn't be a huge endeavor, yet they're relying on a, on a German... You know, a German third party to somehow give them this truck, which really made absolutely no sense to me. They must have had a quota about the number of foreign locations they had to film in. So DeVoe and Kelly make their way by way of their Russian contacts who uh, basically set up a meeting with the Kordak company. So they get a meeting scheduled with the Kordak company. However, uh, DeVoe's character takes a pretty heavy-handed uh, approach. Uh, they basically anger the people at the company who tried to kick them out. But DeVoe, who gets things done, pulls out a gun and some duct tape and... That's pretty much all he needs to get the answers he needs. Uh, he literally uh, ties up the guy from the Kordak company while uh, Kelly, I guess, hack, well, she gets the password from the Kordak uh, contact and gets invoice information for all trucks over the last or the previous seven days that fit uh, what they thought could smuggle out a nuclear weapon. So after a firefight with the Kordak company henchmen after trying to escape uh, being unnoticed, um, uh, both Kelly and DeVoe are able to track the invoice or a particular invoice for a particular truck um, that they think is being used to smuggle the nuclear weapon. They look at the information and find that it's headed uh, to Azerbaijan, uh, which is very close to Iran. And so they put or what they seemingly put two and two together uh, to realize or conclude that the nuclear weapons are on their way uh, to Iran. So it's at this point that we take a slight detour in the narrative from just the hunt for nuclear weapons where we're introduced to a Serbian official, Dusan Gavrik, um, who is, we find out through by the end of the movie, is disgruntled with the West generally, but particularly the United Nations, uh, for being incapable of stopping some of the conflict and a lot of the massacres uh, that, that occurred in Sarajevo in the mid-1990s uh, and in the kind of broader Eastern Europe uh, region. So we know he's planning to use the nuclear weapon, but at this point we don't exactly know why. Um, what we do find out slowly but surely is he's actually involved in uh, the local government as an official. Uh, he is picked to go to the United Nations uh, to attend a treaty that's being signed in New York. And then we start to piece together that he's ultimately going to use his diplomatic um, category or diplomatic protection to be able to smuggle in a nuclear weapon. Because during the cold open of the movie, one of the officials in that country was assassinated, I guess, at a baptism. You don't really know why. It just happens, and then, boom, immediately after that, you're back in Russia somewhere else. So you're not really sure why, but then it all pieces together that they assassinated that individual so that Dusan can be presented as the alternate to this UN delegation. And over a course of a few different flashbacks, we learn that ultimately why Dusan is mad at the West and the United Nations is because his wife and daughter were killed in a 
what appeared to be a sniper firefight, which uh, is a, a reference to some of the historical conflicts in Sarajevo where snipers would often kind of trade casualties uh, shooting uh, what appeared to be both soldiers as well as innocent civilians uh, in the 1990s, uh, especially around 1995. One thing we talked about when, when we watched the movie was I, 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 it wasn't exactly clear why the the employment of a nuclear weapon in New York against the UN and against the West and against Americans would somehow for him, uh, uh, you know, you know, make things right. Uh, it was, you know, he seemed to blame the West for supplying arms. That was kind of in his take. But it, you know, the, the movie didn't do a good job, kind of really squaring squaring that that, that sort of plot hole. Yeah, I thought one they did a good job, and this was actually um, in some of the materials around Mimi Later, the the director. You know, she has said this, and people who have uh, reviewed the movie have said one of the strengths of the movie is being able to depart from the stereotypes of action movies by actually doing more to paint the or describe the motivations for the terrorist. You know, typically it's a terrorist wants to do blow something up because they're a terrorist, but they don't focus too much on... Sort of irrational. Right, right the, the underlying motivations, however awful they might be, just at least explaining so the audience knows. So the, the movie does a good job of explaining his motivations. He's you know traumatized and mad about what he thought was a failure to stop the murder of his family. But to your point, they don't really explain, uh, especially when they were going to sign a peace treaty... Why blowing up the United Nations or causing some kind of, of incident would actually have improved things? I, I think the the best you can point to is uh, Kelly's character on a plane ride with DeVoe. You know, there's the discussion about some people, you know, don't have a very clear motivation that they simply have a lot of hate and pain and they want to share that with the world, which I think is kind of the foreshadowing. Or it it somehow kind of glues together the disparate pieces of. Dusan's motivations. So you you never quite see well what that what was the treaty? What was it for? Wouldn't that improve things? And then you focus more on well he's clearly someone dealing with pain and that's his motivation. I think that actually makes a bit more sense now that I think about it because there's this piano, this this music that he plays throughout the movie, and I think one of the one of the main points that he brings up is that by changing a, a few notes, it's able to. The, the, the tonality and the sound switches from joy to sorrow and pain. And I think that seems to be his objective is just simply to uh, have others experience the pain and suffering of losing their homes and their families the same way that he did. Um, which, you know, in, in many ways is, is also irrational, but at least they try to uh, delve into the emotive side of that a bit more. It's certainly different from a movie like Some of All Fears in which you have a larger strategic objective of essentially drawing the U.S. and the, and, and the Russians uh, into an actual shooting battle uh, through the employment of a, of a single nuclear weapon. I think that one had secret neo-Nazis that wanted to yes. start a war between the United States and Russia. So, um, But I think we'll talk about this a little bit at the end after we're done with the plot and the nuclear discussion. But I think this discussion we're having now might have been part of why this movie – didn't resonate with audiences as well because of the fact that the villain was so starkly different than previous expectations of a terrorist. It was very sympathetic. Um, and I, I was joking about this that when I was first watched this movie that the ending and the even the title of the movie is a bit of a bummer for a traditional action movie um, depiction. 
because a lot of blame is placed on the West in terms of what happened in Bosnia and 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 in Serbia. And the villain of the movie, um, even the even the title is is a bit of a bummer. The the idea of the peacemaker. At first, when I, I watched this movie in high school. I don't know why I thought it was maybe a reference to the peacekeeper weapon system of the United States, um, but obviously not. Obviously, it's a reference to peacekeepers that were in Bosnia to enforce the Dayton Accords. So it's kind of like a, you come in here and tell us what to do. You're the peacemakers. Now we need to come to you. You need to go away and just let us figure it out ourselves. Um, so I thought that was very interesting because even the title of the movie kind of refers to a United States and the West kind of need to keep out, which would have been maybe a little awkward when Steven Spielberg um, screened this movie for NSC and uh, military staff in, in Washington, D.C., because you're watching this movie that you helped to have a role in, and you're like, oh, wow, the, the spotlight has really turned on us on that front. So I wonder how that, the, the, what the reaction to that was, if there was some Q&A at the end of that with Steven Spielberg and uh, Mimi Letter. So on that point, I think if I was sitting in that audience for that screening, there, there, there are two rather humorous uh, points that come up in the movie. Uh, the first is that the, I believe it's the NSC director, he, he shows up to work at about, or when, when this crisis happens, when there's the first detonation uh, on the train in, in the Urals, he shows up to work at about six or seven in the morning wearing a full tuxedo, uh, which was never really explained. Like, why? Why he was he was wearing a, a full tux? Although, guy. although, do we know it was in the morning? Because I was wondering, could it have been like late at night? Late at night and so I, I always took it. I mean, whenever you see in a in a movie, you know, the president or somebody with a tuxedo, you know, the implication is they were at some you know reception or something doing the whole DC yeah. internet, you know, politics stuff, yeah, and they got pulled out of a reception, and you know. Uh, having to explain everything. No, no. I like to think that it was um, the national security advisor had a one night stand the night before, and just came to work wearing the clothes that he wore the night before. I think that's clearly what Mimi Letter tried to, to portray in this. She's, it's a it's a critical look at insider inside the Beltway morality. I, I think that's the subplot that we're trying to get here. So the, the second point is uh, Nicole Kidman's character appears to work in a cage <laughs> in. In, in the White House, not not uh, not not a jail cell, if you will, but this this very odd. And you don't mean that as a metaphor, like no, she's no, caged in bureaucracy. Like... I mean, you mean a literal, literal cage. physical cage made, I, I believe, of chicken wire. It's like chicken wire. It's, yeah. it's very odd. Instead of having kind of like a cubicle divide, um, you know, her office space is partitioned from the rest of her colleagues, which are normal cubicles. Yeah, you know, it's a normal cubicles. pit of desks. With giant chicken wire cage apparatus uh which is um incredibly odd and no one seems to remark on this um at at all the entire time and it seems to serve no security purpose whatsoever (laughs) maybe she locks it every night when (laughs) she leaves just in case you know extra security yeah maybe her bosses were upset that she keep uh leaving work all the time to go swimming and running some laps at the (laughs) or swimming some laps at the ymca and says no 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 it's time to work lock the door yeah, because it is odd that this movie, uh, her character, you know, it, it we're introduced and, 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 and it's concluded with her essentially swimming laps, which is rather, rather odd and makes no sense. So what about the Russians that had the, all the different warheads? Were they able to grab those guys? 
Well, so we had uh, Kodorov with his folks uh, taking the nuclear weapons, probably what they thought was Iran. Um, like they, they probably thought that, that was the actual destination. Um, however, uh, DeVoe's character is able to track down the truck uh, to uh, Azerbaijan uh, near the, the border area into Iran. Uh, and they're able, through what seems to be 24-7 live feed satellites, track uh, the truck down. Uh, they're able to scramble a number of helicopters. They get authorization from the president, national security advisor, to actually engage uh, in Russian airspace, uh, this this lone truck that's smuggling these nuclear weapons. They're able to grab eight nuclear weapons. It turns out the ninth one had been stolen before they were able to inter- intercept the truck. Uh, and at the truck, they were able to stop the Russian special forces team, but then also find a, a Pakistani nuclear specialist. We don't get too much information on him other than he was a hired gun, uh, basically hired to um, work on the nuclear device itself, uh, apparently educated in Harvard, uh, and was able to kind of make the nuclear device a mobile backpack bomb uh, for the uh, Serbian official Dusan. So once we get the full picture of Dusan's motivations, that he's, you know, uh, rather than taking a nuclear bomb to Iran, he's actually taking a nuclear bomb to a mobile nuclear bomb to New York City for this treaty signing to detonate it at the United Nations. Um, we then quickly go back to what is typical fare when when it comes to action movies with nuclear weapons where now you know his motivations. He's He's literally got a nuclear bomb on his back and he's making his way in New York City to the United Nations. And then we get into typical George Clooney, Nicole Kidman, running down streets with helicopters, uh, military folks, uh, a lot of FBI guys with jackets trying to figure out uh, where he is. Uh, And it's at this point there's this odd cat and mouse dynamic where uh, they kind of know where his hotel is and they're they're running after him, but he's always kind of two blocks ahead of them or maybe two minutes ahead of them where they get to the hotel – right as he's exiting the hotel. Uh, he's walking down uh, the street right after, uh, or, and he gets to a particular point, and then two seconds later, the police put up roadblocks to to start stopping people to see and inspect their backpacks. But, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but it just seemed odd to me that, and I know for movies you got to generate suspense, but it just seemed at different points a little hollow how, uh, you know, Oh, they just missed him. If they just had another thirty seconds, and I know maybe that that sometimes happens, but it was for a person who's walking around New York City, one of the most populous cities in the United States. It seemed odd that uh, there wouldn't be a more concerted, coordinated uh, effort on that front. I think the the surprising thing was that he was able to walk out the front door of the hotel without anyone stopping him. Uh, no one securing the perimeter. Jack Bauer would never let something like that happen. Um, but sure. it, it's cer- it certainly, I don't think, is a uh, that far off when it comes to how difficult it is to coordinate an interagency, interdepartmental uh, city and federal response to something like this. It's very difficult. So eventually they are able to catch up to Dusan. He can't evade every roadblock forever. Uh, he does uh, get cornered in, I believe it was a, a school. Uh, engages in a brief firefight with uh, DeVoe and Kelly. Again, like all action movies, even though there might be thousands of people looking for this guy, it always devolves into a one-on-one matchup, typically with a single pistol or hand-to-hand combat. Uh, 
Dusan is wounded. He makes his way to a nearby church where he's uh, starting to bleed to death. Uh, DeVoe and Kelly catch up to him. There's a brief exchange where Kelly's character tries to understand, one, what he's doing with the bomb in terms of whether there's a timer or a switch, uh, and then also trying to figure out why he did what he did. Uh, And then there's this kind of famous – well, not famous, but one of the key uh, lines in the movie, I think, where – uh, Dusan is explaining why he's so bitter at the West and how they're they're going to have to deal with their um, be punished essentially for their transgressions or inaction. And at one point, uh, Devoe says, "You know, it's not our war." To which Dusan says, "It is now." And then he actually shoots himself and dies. Uh, and then they realize that the bomb is on a timer. I believe there is about two minutes and thirty-seven seconds, so maybe three minutes. Oh, that's that's a fair amount of time in action movie standards. Uh, and then they proceed to try to dismantle the bomb. I'm going to defer this section to the experts here, but essentially, uh, Kelly's character is able to blow up the bomb itself without actually causing a detonation of the nuclear material. And then they realize they've saved New York City uh, and the United Nations. And then we go back to the swimming pool, and uh, DeVoe asks Kelly out on a date. And then they end it, which is, you know, a pretty good ending for a nuclear-themed action movie. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Although after being covered in plutonium, I really hope that I wouldn't have to swim in that pool after <laughs> Nicole Kidman's running around in there. I hope there's some good chlorine in there. Does chlorine uh, disinfect plutonium? I don't know. So that's the plot of the movie. Uh, typical 1990s action, but also some interesting themes uh, dealing with uh, civil war, uh, terrorists using nuclear weapons, and some other pieces to it. But of course, this is what this podcast is about. Uh, I have about seven points that I'd like to go through. I don't know how much of this we'll be able to go with, but basically some of the nuclear nonsense in this. Uh, first, what are the, the what's the deal with the SS-18s, the type of missile warheads that we see in that movie? How is that portrayed? Um, also, the nuclear detonation scenes. So we have one in the Urals that actually goes off, and then we have one that almost goes off in New York City. I can kind of cover a little bit of what I've been able to think about and, and find research on how that was depicted. Uh, third thing we can talk about is if you uh, hit a nuclear weapon with a gun and a knife, uh, will that stop it from going off? I think that was very different than what you would normally would see in a nuclear weapon action movie. We can also talk about uh, the, the very fact that nuclear weapons were stolen from Russia. Was this something that is a real um, depiction of what happens in, in the 1990s? Especially one uh, a warhead that was rewired from an ICBM. What kind of how that happened and what's the context of the movie? A few other things we talk about: um, the accidental explosion of the SS-18, uh, the Nest team, the nuclear emergency search team that we see in the end. Those helicopters that Joel mentioned had radioactive detectors on them and tried to look for uh, where the bomb was. Are those real? We can talk about that a little bit. Uh, and then finally. Um, the satellite imagery that Joel mentioned already. Uh, I think that was a pretty crazy depiction of it, but we can go through some of the details on that. So first, uh, what's the deal with those SS-18s? The SS-18, just a quick description, hopefully this isn't too boring, it's a type of intercontinental ballistic missile that was developed by the Soviet Union in the late 1960s. This one is notorious for a couple of reasons. It was highly accurate, very fast, and the largest Soviet ICBM with the most throw weight. This is the fancy term that weapon designers have for how much payload a missile can carry, including both the warhead and any other 
tools, decoys that they use so that the missiles can confuse missile defenses of the target country that they're going after. And the the throw weight was so large and so uh, much potential for that missile to carry, it, it overwhelmed even the largest U.S. equivalent, the U.S. peacemaker weapons or the MX missile system. Now, these weapons in particular were some of the most feared by the United States and, and NATO deterrence analysts uh, of the ni- late 1970s and early 1980s because they worried the missiles created what they called a window of vulnerability. Essentially, the SS-18 uh, and other similar missiles of that uh, categories could theoretically be used as a first strike weapon, essentially um, because they have a lot of warheads on each individual missile that are independently targeted. They can have a, a variant of that missile with 10 warheads, as Julia Kelly mentions in the movie. One missile can go up and hit 10 targets, and the United States would have no ability to respond to that if only a couple of those uh, merved weapons went up quickly landed on uh, U.S. missiles themselves, uh, like the land-based systems and the bombers, those would get destroyed and the Soviet Union would have some things left to deter the United States from exploding uh, Soviet cities, but the United States wouldn't have enough to be able to fight an actual shooting war against the Russian weapons themselves. So some estimates even suggested that the Russian SS-18 force could eliminate 65 to 80% of the U.S. silos while putting two warheads still on each U.S. target. You lose that a potential. It's very destabilizing, and it was a push for Ronald Reagan when he came into office to uh, modernize the U.S. nuclear force, make it larger, and create the Star Wars uh, Strategic Defense Initiative program, the missile defense as we understand it today, came from that worry. But what about the ones we saw in the movie? How was that portrayed? Well, based on the information given in the, in the film... I think that the SS-18 variant is what is probably referred to in the Russian parlance as the R-36 MUT-KH, so M-U-T-T-K-H, which is known as the SS-18 Satan Mod 4 in the NATO coding. So NATO is pretty good at naming things. Uh, So they have – NATO has a a terms lexicon book that they use to describe things. The Russians have their own, and then there's treaty – uh, ways of describing it. But the NATO uh, forces just describe this particular weapon as Satan. Um, these, uh, what type, type of variant in particular, uh, had warheads, 10 of them, that each were within 550 to 750 kiloton. SS, if, you know, if you're interested, stands for surface-to-surface missile. Um, but again, you got to love that NATO nickname, the Satan, really tells you how what they thought about it. Um, other variants of the SS-18 have uh, one or more MIRVs, but only two variants had 10. So that's why I think it was the Mod 4. Also, because of the missile base that's described at the beginning of the movie, the uh, I don't speak Russian, but the uh, Kartelays, uh, which is in the silo base in uh, Chelyabinsk, Russia has about 50 of them uh, by most U.S. estimates in 1985. So that gives you an idea of what these weapons were, where they were, and how they were portrayed in the movie. But um, I did like how they portrayed them. Uh, in the in the film, the SS-18 is a little bit larger than uh, what these weapons were in the film. The point is, it's a lot larger in real in real life, but that's a lot of prop work to actually be able to build. Um, but I do like how in the film they made a mention of the START Treaty, which is the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Again, a little bit redundant, kind of like ATM machine. But the START Treaty was signed in July 1991, entered into force in 1994, and the treaty capped the number of ICBMs at 850 for both the U.S. and the Russians, and also it capped the number of heavy ICBMs like the SS-18 to about 110 for each country. So many of those needed to be dismantled, have their silos altered to prevent their use. So that's what starts 
the beginning of the movie where they have to un- un- basically take out the silos, take off the missiles, and move the warheads somewhere else to be dismantled. We negotiate the the START treaty, and it kind of causes all this problem, which is happened what, what happened in, re- in in reality. You have all these arms control treaties that dismantled or call for the dismantling of the weapons, but then you still have to figure out what to do with them, um, which creates more of a problem when uh, places like the former Soviet Union that didn't have good accounting of what how many warheads they had, and they didn't have any money anymore because their budgets were slashed after the end of the Cold War, which created a, a series of problems as described in the One Point Safe book in particular. So one of the solutions that the United States had for this problem was what eventually was referred to as the Nunn-Luger Program, a congressional initiative led by Senators Sam Nunn and Richard Luger, one uh, Democrat and one Republican, which Jessica Stern, uh, the, one of the people who's the NSC staffer that we mentioned, who was that Nicole Kidman's character was based off of, she really wanted Nunn-Luger to be mentioned in the movie, but I guess people didn't know what that was, so that she wasn't able to get that in there. Um, but in particular, that program helped dismantle about 400 ICBMs, including SS-18s. But as we see in the movie, this wasn't too popular with the Russian military, who said, uh, as I quote, I didn't join the Russian army to see it dismantled by the Americans. Today, there's about 50 uh, SS-18 Mod 5s or Mod 6, which are more advanced weapons that were designed a little bit later on, left in Russia, uh, and they're expected to last until at least 2026. Russia announced that it's working on fielding a new heavy ICBM to replace the SS-18. So these worries about MIRVed weapons and heavy ICBMs have certainly not gone away. So the next thing I want to, I think it's would be interesting to talk about uh, would be the uh, accidental SS-18 warhead explosion that happens on the train, because this was a really important plot point. Um, one of the things that Dr. Kelly says, that's why she knows this wasn't an accident, as people maybe thought happened when the two trains collided and a nuclear bomb goes off, was because she says in the movie, the SS-18 pencils out as one point safe, which is the terminology that weapon designers use to describe uh, a one in a million chance that the bomb goes off in a way that's not as it's intended. So if you hit it with a rock, it gets shocked by lightning. Um, you shoot it with a bullet, as they say in the movie. There's a one in a million chance that this happens, which is proof in the movie why these, this wasn't an accident, that clearly someone else was involved. But I find it really interesting that one of the major points of the book that this is based off of, which is called One Point Safe, is that Russian weapons, especially those on train cars, are not one point safe, that they're very, very vulnerable to being dropped and going off, to being hit with a rock and going off, to a train derailing and then going off. So the movie kind of inverts that. I guess it's more of just a a way to be able to do the plot the way they did it. But I just find it really interesting that the people who uh, who wrote the book kind of let that one go and and played and played it around. So um it maybe doesn't make for an exciting action movie, but it certainly led to the depiction of uh, how these weapons go off and how they're used. And I think, Tristan, you wanted to talk a little bit about how uh, the bombs that go off and doesn't go off in this movie is a little bit different than what we see today in terms of the big action movies. Yeah, so, I mean, at the outset, let me just say that big blockbuster movies like The Peacemaker, uh, as it was in the 1990s, are, are really... A- all about luring in very large audiences. These are obviously business, uh, big business kind of endeavors for the movie industry. So I, I don't expect movies like The Peacemaker uh, to really be similar to you know more advocacy-oriented films, uh, such as the, the very famous The Day After, mm-hmm. which premiered in 1983. And uh, for those who watch The Americans, I think there was a great 
uh, scene in, in the latest season in which uh, you know it, it kind of showed some of the various families and, and characters on the Americans uh, watching the premiere of, of The Day After, which for those who don't know, is a very graphic uh, and visceral depiction of what a of what the aftermath would be like for a small town um, after a U.S. Soviet exchange of, of nuclear weapons, and I think that had a major impact on how people thought about about these weapons at the at one of the most dangerous periods in, in the Cold War. Did, didn't that movie uh, wasn't it one of the ones that spooked Ronald Reagan into yeah. being more interested in disarmament and those kind of efforts? So another impact of how film uh, can influence people's thoughts. Indeed. On these issues, and so there's there's those films that are. I mean, that's really their objective, right? Then there's more artistic indie films, and here I'm thinking of Steve McQueen's masterpieces. So there's uh, the movie Hunger, uh, which is a very a very difficult movie to watch. Uh, its depiction of violence uh, and torture uh, in the British uh, uh, penal system is, is 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 very difficult to watch. Um, and his more well-known uh, Oscar-winning masterpiece, Twelve Years a Slave, also, you know, the way that he kind of portrays violence is 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 very is very tough to watch. So a big blockbuster movie is needs to be kind of in between. Mm-hmm. You know, it needs to be something that a lot of people are going to be interested in coming to watch. And so I think it's useful to ask in, in, in thinking about the Peacemaker. You know, what was the bar, if you will, for destruction in the 1990s? Or what's the bar for action that's really going to draw in a large audience? And so here I think, you know, it's useful to put this movie, in, you know, in, in comparison with The Rock in The Sum of All Fears uh, as kind of a as kind of realistic action movies. Uh, and by realistic, I mean in comparison to two of the more infamous sci-fi movies, Terminator 2 and Independence Day. So in The Rock... We never actually see wholesale destruction uh, and, and kind of mass death. I mean, that's really the, the premise of the movie is that, you know, there's, there's chemical weapons being aimed at, you know, I think it's Candlestick Park or, or one of the stadiums. So in some of all fears, you know, we actually see uh, a detonation of a nuclear device in, in Baltimore. And I think they do a pretty good job of, of really kind of delving into, uh, you know, the effects that that, that would have. Uh, if, if that if that occurred here, um, and then of course there's uh, there's more sci-fi oriented movies such as Terminator 2, which has a very famous scene of kind of you know when Skynet becomes aware and launches uh, you know all these nuclear weapons, what, what what that would do to an urban area. And then also I was course, I was never able to 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 play in a playground again <laughs> after that happened, yeah. or be near a fence. And then of course there's Independence Day, which you know you see. You know, I think that's kind of the start of. of of this, uh, of this like massive kind of urban destruction um, that we see today. Uh, but you know, for those latter two movies, we're really talking about sci-fi situations, end of this, end, end of civilization, you know, with, with really dire effects. And I think both Terminator and Independence Day did, you know, manage to capture some of that. Um, so you know, the Peacemaker, I think, is kind of in this nice in between, in, in the sense that we do see an early nuclear. Uh, detonation, but it's in a relatively rural area with low casualties, and you know, really, really the, the crux of the plot line is about preventing that from happening again. This time in a more heavily populated, you know, the urban area of Midtown Manhattan. Um, and I, I think I think the movie does distill uh, to its essence some of the difficulties in preventing 
that sort of uh, attack from occurring. Um, and, and so I, I, I do think that, that that plays, you know, a movie like Peacemaker plays a constructive role in shaping how large publics think about these threats. So I think it's, it's then useful to, to shift towards, you know, how has this bar changed today? So that's where it was in the 90s. Where are we today? And if you look just in terms of the amount of money that movies make, you know, the Avengers, the Superman franchises, I mean, these movies make tremendous amounts of money. So obviously, if money is a proxy for influence, you know, the Avengers series is, is one of the more influential blockbusters of our time. Uh, I am very uncomfortable with these movies because of the way they sanitize large-scale violence uh, and, and massive urban destruction. Uh, and in all of these movies, we're seeing ultra-megadeath on a huge scale. Uh, not necessarily from nuclear weapons, but from other effects, such as the Hulk just going ape, mm-hmm. or aliens invading, or, or, what, or what have you. Don't uh, forget Transformers. They were also key. They were key in that, that, in that development. Thank you for reminding me of Transformers. No, I'm very happy to forget Transformers. <laughs> well, and we, we've talked about this a, a little bit on, on some of the previous recordings where we note that um, – and I think this came up actually on our first episode – with True Lies, Tim, where we're talking about, you know, things that you can't really do today in movies that you could maybe do prior to 9-11. And, and I think yeah. comic book villains or sci-fi violence has become an acceptable proxy for weapons of mass destruction in the hands of an individual or a small group of individuals of non-state actors. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's almost as, as if I, it's almost as if we've we've taken the trauma of 9/11. We've become we've internalized that all as a nation. But these movies, in many ways, they have 9/11 type moments where you see New York or you see another major city being destroyed, but you don't actually see the effects on individuals. It's more like you see a building just going up, and and it just re, it kind of replays those scenes over and over again. And, and in many ways, this 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 sort of Massive urban destruction, I, I feel, has, has desensitized the public hmm. uh, towards these sort of events. Um, and I think maybe, maybe one of the early movies that, that really started to pioneer this trend was The Matrix, in the sense that there was there was a lot of there was a lot of virtual death in The Matrix. Hmm. There was a lot of you know uh, large scale destruction, um, but because precisely because it was kind of in this virtual world, it didn't really matter. Uh, and unfortunately, the way that movies like The Avengers have gone, they've, they've only kind of uh, tried to, you know, one-up each other in terms of the level of destruction. Again, without really thinking about what would this actually mean for people living in that city. They kind of mention it in passing, like maybe Tony Stark will be in a penthouse saying, hey, that last movie, you know, man, we really messed up the city and everyone's really pissed at us. It's like, yeah, but why are they pissed at you? Hmm. So have you seen Avengers 2? Or not Avengers 2, uh, Captain America Civil War? No, I haven't. I think you'll be surprised about how they handle some of those issues, uh, at least in that movie, because they try to, part of the reason why the, oh, now we're just spoiling Avengers and Captain America Civil War. <laughs> wait, wait, we wait, spoil wait. everything here. But trust wait, me, this, this is not, this is not just completely a comic book, uh, uh, tangent, but I think in that movie they try to show what, uh, what's the public reaction, not only from the public, but also from the government who has to deal mm-hmm. with how to respond to the public. And you have two different, responses amongst the superheroes you have a response from tony stark who starts these movies as a character who is uh, chaotic 
who is a rogue, who only believes in himself, doesn't trust the government at all, um, then through a series of his own ego mistakes, uh, basically by creating that robot Ultron uh, in his own image, and that causes destruction, similar to the one you're talking about. At the end, he's more of a let's place restrictions on ourselves, let's work with government, let's try to get people's trust. Different response than Captain America, who starts these movies as um, really you know, a, a rule-based good guy who... Is thinks that the government, because it's, you know, the, uh, during the World War II, had a faith in government, and then after he gets frozen and wakes up again in the post-Cold War, post-9-11 uh, world, um, no longer s- trust in the government automatically. He sees what happens with uh, the government and, and S.H.I.E.L.D. being taken over by essentially a terrorist organization, and only can trust in himself and can't trust in others, but still believes that he has to have some responsibility in how to deal with uh, massive casualties. So I, I think you would be surprised about that, but I, I completely understand what you're saying about how different movies use nuclear weapons sometimes as a straight plot device. Like mm-hmm. when we when we dealt with um, True Lies and with um, Captain or not um, which True Lies and GI Joe Retaliation, nuclear weapons in those worlds are just. They're the things that cause the big booms, and the good guys need to go in and shoot everyone they can to be able to deal with this. And that's the important part. It's not this destroy. Why they're not a story that a director and a writing team is trying to tell you about destruction and uh, people's individual, especially this movie, responsibilities that they have. I think there is a really fascinating discussion between uh, Nicole Kidman's character and George Clooney's character about the dual nature of people that work at some of the national laboratories. Um, Nicole Kidman's character previously worked at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which was part of the uh, national apparatus that during the Cold War and now uh, builds nuclear weapons. But they also have a non-proliferation mission to be able to stop other countries from uh, building weapons themselves and, and ultimately, hopefully, are involved in the verification and the dismantle process of nuclear weapons around the world, if that's an idea that you think is worth pursuing. But they have those twin goals. Uh, some days they build weapons because they keep people safe. Uh, under their mission, and then other ones they dismantle weapons and they encourage non-proliferation because they are 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 bad in that sense. So I think that that duality of of, of ideas and mission is very fascinating, and I'm very surprised that a movie like this um, would ha- would touch on that subject, which is probably why it comes from the writers uh, who have dealt with these issues uh, on, a, on a more individual level in terms of at least investigating these things in great detail. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of wrap up the way that I've, I've kind of thought about this in, in the sense of, you know, I think blockbusters have a, a unique opportunity to really shape public perception um, and specifically how the public perceives and ranks existential threats to the way that we live and, and, and to inter- international security. Uh, and I, I feel as though movies like The Avengers, they really don't, uh, they, they're, they're really not making the best use of, of that, of that really just the massive potential of these movies to, to really impact an extremely wide audience. Mm. And the one thing I'll give the Peacemaker, it's not the best movie. I think we'll probably talk about it at the end. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not the best plot. It's certainly not the best acting, especially for Clooney. But I will say that, that it really drives home the seriousness of, of, of the loose, of the so-called loose news problem and, and of the, of the impact and, and seriousness uh, that that a single nuclear device can have in the urban area. So I'll just add. I mean, as, as we've been talking here, where we can't help but compare kind of the mid '90s to what we're seeing now with um, 
you know, kind of the comic book movies because they're the closest parallel to kind of mass destruction as you were talking about, Tristan. And, you know, I think it's, I think there may be more of a direct connection than we might even think where, you know, the movies that came out around that time in the mid nineties were kind of a direct result about broad, uh, imprecise fears about post-Cold War status in the world as far as we knew before during the Cold War what our threats were and we at least thought we knew how to respond to them. I think there are at least two or three references in The Peacemaker of some random intelligence guy walking the hallway going, oh, I missed the Cold War. Or you know, even the Russians say, oh, we, we can't go back to our – you know, last Monday when, you know, we knew who our enemy was and what to do to defeat them, or at least keep up this kind of back and forth, you know, um, uh, Cold War going. So, but in all those movies, and you saw this with the submarine movies, with Hunt for Red October, et cetera, where you had the remnants of the Cold War, all these weapons, and people realizing the threats that could emerge would be non-state actors and all the movies point to, well, how does the state apparatus deal with the non-state actors? And I almost wonder if all those movies show all this breakdown in technology and you have thousands of people and yet you can't stop one guy with a nuclear weapon. And how movies have responded to that, if you think about it, the the idea of a superhero, you know, you look at George Clooney, like he's just a lieutenant colonel. He's not like some superhero that can do this. Mm-hmm. Well, now you've started to see the emergence of all these movies where you directly have superhero comic book characters who do possess superhuman powers. And so you can have movies that seem to take on, you know, the entire power of the United States government or some international community are just kind of imbued in these five, six, seven, eight characters like Captain America, Iron Man, because I think after the mid nineties, there's been almost a, I don't know, there, you know, kind of the collective frustration about the apparent bureaucracy in governments to be able to, to respond to threats. And so from a movie perspective, it's easier to kind of infuse all of government into three or four individual characters like Robert Downey Jr. I think you raise a very interesting point in terms of the role that major motion pictures can play in helping to define public threat perception. Uh, And and precisely, I think, you know, there's things that movies like The Peacemaker or The Summer of Fears are going to get wrong, obviously. It's, it's, again, it's not like Helen Mirren's new film, you know, about, you know, Eye in the Sky looking at civil military relations. Not a documentary. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's not one of these more kind of niche films. We're talking about a big audience draw film here. And so I think I think there is a certain public service that these movies do play when they're trying to draw attention to an issue that I think most people probably wouldn't care about by really showing them how this would play out and showing them the difficulty and if one of if 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 this sort of technology or if these sort of capabilities uh, were to, to, to end up on an unregulated market for sale, how difficult it would be. Uh, to actually respond to that. And so I think movies like Some of All Fears, like The Rock, uh, as much as we kind of mock them as kind of these like 90s relics, I think they are important in, in, in really driving home uh, for a mass public audience a, a few key things that they should be concerned about. And, and in that sense, if the public's concerned about it, they're going to kind of pass that, that on to their representatives 
and it hopefully provides a good basis for the elites, if you will, to, to have some support to start tackling the, the, these issues. And I guess I'll just leave it at this. You know, the more that we have these sort of major blockbusters that are not really taking these, these issues seriously, or at least kind of candy coating them, if they are trying to grapple with, with certain issues, I think, I think they're kind of, uh, they're not really taking on that same sort of public service role that, I mean, when you think about The Rock, you hardly think of this as a public service announcement. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, look, looking back on these movies, I think they did kind of help set a certain tone for, for, for what we should be caring about in terms of true existential threats to national security. That is a very eloquent, very rational response to how movies um, exist in the, the public mind and how it influences people's thinking on these things. Um, but that's not the point of this podcast. We overanalyze things. <laughs> we figure out what things got right and what they got wrong, and we ignore the whole theme yeah, and all feel, that stuff. Feel free to edit most of that out. <laughs> no, no, but I, I totally get what you're saying. Uh, but I would like to, to go a little further sure. in terms of what you're talking about, about the the public service role in the, ni- the mid-'90s, because people at that time, um, if they're not you know babies, they had to deal with uh, the, the threat of um, basically massive, dis- dev- massive devastation from a nuclear war, uh, whether you lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, whether or not you lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and maybe at that time, we're like, ah, oh, it's over. We don't have to worry about that anymore because the, the Russians are, are, are back to being okay in terms of our, our friends. And, you know, we're meeting on a, on a diplomatic level. We're not having to worry about that, those anymore. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think people like Jessica Stern and then NSC staff really had to work to t- encourage people to think this isn't over. Um, after the end of the of the, the Soviet Union, um, there was no money to pay highly specialized staff that would used to work in the USSR. That you know, essentially they they refer to themselves as the Soviet uh, gu- nuclear guardians. Uh, didn't have extra money in their paycheck every month like they used to. They didn't. They used to have to only be of pure Slavic origin. They weren't allowed to be another ethnic minority because. The military thought this was an incredibly important mission, and that's how they thought they could handle it. And one of the funny things I got from the One Point Safe book was they got an extra four pounds of sausage every month in their food rations. So these were clearly very well um, regarded individuals in terms of the military, and they got their extra uh, sausage rations. An extra four pounds. Extra four pounds. It's pretty good. And that's per month, so not not going too crazy. Um, but after the end of the uh, Soviet Union, there's a lot of examples of where this threat clearly didn't go away, and it went away, in a, and it came back in a different way. Uh, one example, a, a, a nuclear artillery factory in the Ural Mountains shifted their work from, instead of building uh, nuclear warheads and artillery shells, tried to make bicycles for countries in Africa, um, but no one was buying them. So you had these people whose jobs essentially disappeared and their expertise and how to handle these things, what, what are they going to do when they have to support their family or maintain the lifestyle, the sausage ratios that they previously had? Another example was an SS-25, a mobile ICBM uh, missile system, was discovered abandoned by its crew with the warhead still on it. And that was after several days because they just didn't have that interest in the mission anymore. They had to go back home and make, uh, make a living somewhere else. Um, in 1992, a bomber wing in the Russian uh, Air Force decided to become an international freight and charter service instead of performing its actual mission. Uh, to be able to you know patrol with nuclear weapons, so they had to figure out ways to make to make money. Uh, much of the Soviet Union was essentially sold off uh, to the black market. And Joel, one I know one of your favorite movies with another Nick Cage movie, Lord of War, depicts that pretty clearly. Uh, these weapons 
no longer were in the hands of the, the central military uh, establishment. People at the very top didn't know what the commanders in the bottom were doing because they were selling tanks and artillery shells. And what's to stop uh, someone from just selling a, a nuclear bomb or a, a plutonium core, the type of th- items and material you need to build a bomb that were normally out of reach by countries and individuals. So a lot of what the, the plot of the book has to deal with is where Team Stern and their efforts uh, eventually lead to a meeting with Clinton uh, after the OKC bombing, which was very much on his mind 12 days before. Finally, they were able to piece together and understand that Russian nu- loose nuclear weapons was a real threat. Uh, they pushed forward with the non-Luger program and a lot of the other uh, cooperative threat reduction efforts between the United States and the Soviet Union's, um, uh, you know, essentially the, the legacy of the Soviet Union. I would like to go back real quick to at least talk about how the bomb that went off in the Ural Mountains and how the one that didn't go off in the city was at a, a description um, that seems to be an accurate uh, portrayal, what these things can do to people and objects. Um, now, a lot of this stuff we're just going to talk only in the open source because there's this great tool out there that I recommend everybody play around with called NukeMap. Just Google the phrase NukeMap, one word. It's an online tool that was created by Alex Wellernstein. He's a historian and a nuclear expert at the uh, Stevens Institute of Technology. He allows you to be able to pick a point. You can pick different types of warheads, different types of effects, whether it be bursted in the air or on the ground. And you can essentially see what it's like if, if the Russians or the Chinese or the United States were to nuke your hometown. Kind of fun. Maybe not something you want to be able to do at Thanksgiving, but it's kind of a, a good way to be able to play around with this. So with this tool... I guess that depends on how well you get along with your family during Thanksgiving dinner. You know, sometimes you might want to take out your uncle. <laughs> I find this to be an incredibly valuable teaching tool at times, especially for uh, younger students. Uh, sometimes that I'm, I, when I give a presentation to, mm-hmm. oftentimes if I'm giving a presentation about how advanced technology might impact the spread of nuclear weapons, for example... I'll kind of pause halfway through and say, well, you know, you'll be 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and I'll kind of use, I'll put the, the exact geo-coordinate of, of where we are, uh, if it's in Washington, D.C. somewhere, and, and kind of show them for different types of weapon systems. For example, a first-generation fission weapon versus a, a more advanced two, you know, two-stage thermonuclear. What exactly that sort of weapon would do, uh, given... You know where we are in the surrounding area. Uh, you know what are the blast effects? What are the radiation effects? Mm-hmm. How many would perish in the surrounding area? Uh, and I, I think it's useful, especially for for those that were born in the '90s and I guess now even past the '90s. Yeah, the 2000s. Geez, those people are starting to learn how to drive. To to really give them a good sense of of again the true impact that these these weapons can can, can have, especially on. on so, so using that tool, um, plugging in a 600 uh, kiloton detonation of an SS-18 warhead uh, in Russia on the train, movie says it's between a f- 500 and 600 kilotons. So using that tool, um, the results are that there would be a fireball bl- blast radius of about 0.6 miles. So anything within that area very quickly uh, would catch on fire, explode, all you would have, kind of what you would imagine what's depicted in the movie. Uh, anything within 1.14 miles, uh, even buildings made of concrete would get knocked over, and there would be third-degree burns uh, extending out to 5.32 miles. That poor family, uh, that poor couple who was caught up in the blast, uh, they didn't seem like they were in direct line of sight, 
which is probably why you didn't gruesomely see them catch on fire immediately. Uh, the blast probably would have moved a little bit quicker, uh, knocked them over a little faster. The fireball would have been a little bit quicker. But overall, not a terrible depiction of uh, a 500 kiloton blast. And also, more importantly, it, ver- it shows this as a very scary, real reality for someone who just woke up because they heard a noise outside, and all of a sudden this is their the way that they end. And it's a, a very scary reality. Um, uh, one thing that the movie goes a little bit crazy is they say that the blast was seen as far as Lithuania, which is kind of nuts. That's a thousand miles away. It's kind of the equivalent of you tested a nuclear bomb in Nevada and then someone in Iowa... Uh, saw the blast. A little bit further than you would imagine. But what about the one that didn't go off that was in Manhattan? What would have happened? Well, according to the Pakistani Harvard-trained astrophysics expert, uh, he says he removed the plutonium core out of the weapon to make it mobile, so I guess a little lighter. He said that the device could be used by an individual and would have between a 1 to 2 kiloton yield. This is a pretty big drop in the potential uh, from 500 to 600 kilotons of the SS-18 warhead. But still, um, give you some context of this, the Fat Man plutonium implosion device used in Nagasaki uh, had a 21 kiloton yield. So much, much, much smaller um, than that individual bomb. So there's all these kind of descriptions we can talk about about what if you just remove the plutonium core, would it still have a working bomb or those understandings um, of how that system works. But I don't think we have to go into that level of detail because we can use our nuke map, uh, that trusty device, and assume a 1.5 kiloton yield near the United Nations. After those uh, individual inputs are plugged in, uh, the results are there'd be a fireball of about 310 feet, destroy most buildings within 820 feet, and deliver a 500 REM lethal dose of radiation up to 0.6 miles. So according to, cal- according to the calculator using the population estimates that are there, it would kill up to 50,000 people and injure over 100,000. Now, the movie says there'd be about 600 rads, which is a different description of how you determine uh, radiation absorption versus that would get shot out. So it's similar terms, but it seems like that would be a little bit low based on the numbers that, that NukeMap puts out. Um, but that might be something to understanding about how the weapon was, was made different by the uh, Pakistani Harvard-trained nuclear astrophysics expert. Um, but as the Pakistani scientists would say, it would destroy pretty much anything up to a quarter of a mile. So something that's pretty serious. Now, this isn't what you would might describe as a dirty bomb. A dirty bomb is more when you just put radioactive material combined with conventional explosives. This is was designed, at least, to still have a nuclear yield, still to go supercritical um, and be able to provide a, a blast radius of up to two kilotons. But fortunately, uh, our, our heroes stop that in the climax of the movie. Dr. Kelly and DeVoe are in a chapel uh, in New York City. They would The would-be bomber is dead, and our heroes are trying to disarm the bomb since the nuclear emergency search team is too far away to reach them. They have three minutes to figure out a solution. Well, Kelly, uh, Nicole Kidman's character, thinks that she doesn't have enough time to dismantle the weapon, Although I, I don't really understand how she was trained in explosive ordnance disposal, but maybe that was some of her experience while on the helicopter or her work at the National Lab. But she decides to pry off one of the panels of the explosive lenses on the plutonium core. So the theory behind this approach actually makes a little bit of sense, because there are two basic types of nuclear warheads. Gun designs, 
and implosion designs. Both are configured to bring a subcritical mass of fissile material into a state of supercritical, uh, supercriticality very quickly. Essentially, that means that once the, a neutron is fired into the center of this fissile material, the atoms itself, it breaks up and causes uh, more at an exponential level uh, other neutrons being fired and destroying other elements of uh, other isotopes. Basically, you do one, which causes three, and each of those three causes three, um, which you can only do when the fissile material is in a compact enough state where the neutrons actually hit something instead of flying through empty space. So the gun design is what was used um, in on Hiroshima. It's basically very simple. Most of the time it's used with the uranium, fires one piece of uranium into another, compacts it, fires a neutron into that, and that's what happens when a nuclear bomb goes off. Very simple, wasn't even tested before it was used. But the other type is more complex, the implosion method, uh, which has to use plutonium because of the way plutonium fizzles in a more rapid state. They can't use it in, in a gun design. Now, scientists at Los Alamos developed this idea using explosive charges around a sphere of plutonium to basically go from the size of a softball to the size of a tennis ball gives you an idea of how much density it existed before and then after, which would allow the weapon to go super critical. The idea in the movie, you take off one of those explosive panels, it no longer compresses in a completely uh, uniform pattern, and a symmetrical pattern, and it makes it go asymmetrical, which would no longer allow these, uh, the material, the, the plutonium core, to go super critical. Basically, you just turn this weapon from a bomb that can do one kiloton of explosive to whatever the uh, conventional explosives that were there. So usually when you just find something as one point safe, as they described in the movie, it's so that the bomb uh, doesn't have a yield of higher than just four pounds of TNT. So that explosion we see in the church where it blows out the glass, shoots Nicole Kidman and, and George Clooney's characters out the stained glass window, that was just a conventional explosion, at least what it appears to be, although there's still some issues relating to the fact that there is plutonium now being flied around uh, New York City and how the, the, our individual characters will have to be able to deal with this. Tim, uh, as a humorous aside, I always love it when a movie is able to mention its title seamlessly in the dialogue, as The Peacemaker was able to do. And, and so I'll note that I do like how you were able to mention the title of this podcast in your technical discussion of nuclear weapons effects. I'm going to keep repeating that over and over again. Maybe I should do the same thing about our Twitter handle, which is nuclear podcast at nuclear podcast. And I'll keep integrating that into it. You got to promote your own brand, Tristan. Um, but so would that work? Uh, it might actually prevent the plutonium from compressing down to its smaller size because the shape charges won't fire in the correct pattern. Uh, an example of this occurring in real life was the crash of a USB 52, which had a implosion type uh, nuclear weapon over the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Spain in 1966, which is known as the Palomares uh, accident. The B-52 crashed while refueling in midair, and the plane hit the waters with four hydrogen bombs. Three of them were quickly, pretty quickly recovered, with two of the warhead's explosive detonations having gone off when they hit the ground. They're still trying to deal with the effects of that today. So even without going supercritical, there's still a lot of plutonium debris flying around in the air that they have to be able to deal with. So I would have liked, instead of the end of that movie... Uh, Nicole Kidman swimming around and, and and George Clooney asking her out for a date for them to be some sort of a conversation of like, wow, so I guess our trip to uh, Madison Square Garden might be postponed a few thousand years. I think maybe the real the realistic thing for them to acknowledge at the end is that their lives were probably cut short by, yeah. by, by five years, ten years, fifteen years. So hey, maybe we should uh, 
we should start up this romance sooner rather than later. Makes sense. Yeah, there's some really uh, dark subtext to to him pushing. Maybe when he said later at the end, he's like, uh, I'll wait. I'll wait because I only have about a year, oh. unfortunately. But no, but I mean, this is this is a serious yeah. issue. The New York Times just did a recent article looking at what some of the health effects were from that uh, B-52 crash that you mentioned. And uh, I think if, if the explosion was accurate uh, in that movie, I think not only would Nicole Kidman... Uh, and George Clooney be suffering from some serious radiation effects, but I think the the area itself would would probably be cordoned off for for quite a long time. So instead of like walking it off, maybe her whole swimming regimen, both at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, is just part of her process of basically detoxing from the uh, the explosions and maybe some previous adventures. Wouldn't that be possible? Yeah. Whenever uh, whenever I've been involved in a post nuclear blast, I try and hit up Bikram yoga. To really kind of sweat everything out. Um, that's very that's, that's very considerate. Standard, okay. Uh, standard operating protocol. Pop an iodine tablet and do some yoga. Yep, exactly. Although I wish it was maybe at a private pool and not a, a YMCA. Um, so hopefully to bring this from a little bit darker to a lighter tone, uh, I will give a quick quote from Roger Ebert when he was talking about the ending. Uh, Joel mentioned his distaste for red digital clocks counting down, but he had one fun line that I thought was good worth sharing. At one point, trying to dismantle the bomb, the Kidman character tells a, a, a children's choir director, get those kids away from here as quickly as possible, and the kids scurry out the door. An atomic bomb is about to explode under two minutes. If it does, well, it won't help those kids that are four blocks away down the street. Well, if and if it doesn't explode, the kids are safe where they are. And the wittier screenplay might have actually said, had her say, look, let the kids watch this. They might learn something. And one of the little choir boys uh, would hurry over and say, wow, a red digital readout, just like in the movies. So one of the last things I really want to talk about uh, is near the end, we talk about the interagency response uh, that ultimately succeeds in stopping the bomb from going off in the way that it was intended to. The nuclear emergency response teams, those nest teams that coordinate with everything. So is that how this works? Uh, are, are we guaranteed that if we just know that a bomb's about to go off, that we'll eventually find it and figure it out so we don't have to worry about uh, prevention? It's more about you know dealing with it once the problem occurs? Well, there's a good story about this question uh, in the book, uh, One Point Safe, about an interagency field training exercise called Mirage Gold, which would be comical if it wasn't very frightening. In October 1994, an exercise occurred where the scenario was a nuclear dirty bomb was reported to be at large in New Orleans in the possession of a fictional terrorist group called the Patriots of National Unity. 800 people from the FBI, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, and FEMA worked together to find the weapon, dismantle, and save the day. But spoiler alert on this too, it did not go so well. There was uh, mundane problems such as different agencies using the wrong draft of the action plan, radio batteries running low, and also more serious problems like a lack of coordination with local law enforcement. No one knew the city, so everyone was getting lost while driving around, which I guess is a little joke in the uh, movie where Nicole Kidman characters asked one of the FBI agents, I think it was FBI, where are you from? He goes, Phil Philadelphia. Okay, well, then I'm going to drive around New York City. Uh, but assuming, assuming that she's from New York City? I, I guess so. Yeah. She, she's very worldly. 
um, but FBI agents would get would get lost in during this operation. There was no information sharing amongst the various agencies in this particular um, scenario. So after several days of looking for this bomb, ultimately what they needed to do was an anonymous tip was presented so that the people would actually go to where the bomb was at Bell Chase Naval Air Station. So after getting a hit with their radiation detectors, Ness team was able to find the weapon in an airport shed. The plans called for Nest to enclose the weapon in a 40-foot tall cone of hard foam to slow the blast and contain the debris. But again, this comical farce continues. Uh, the teams were unable to actually get permission from the naval base to detonate the explosive to see if their plan actually worked. At the end of this, no one knew how to get rid of the foam. Basically, they were left with this art display on their base, and they couldn't figure out how to uh, get rid of the foam itself. It wasn't in the budget. Uh, And this lesson of this particular mission, Mirage Gold, really shows that finding a nuclear weapon in a city, even with these teams which are very dedicated, very well-resourced, really hardworking individuals, when you try to get everybody together on a ground, a common mission, it's very difficult. Uh, So I think we'd be a little bit more um, worried. We should be a little bit more worried about the actual response plans near the end. But these teams, these nest teams, which was started in 1974 by President Ford, have worked in a lot of different places where we may not even know that they were there. Uh, they're based in the Department of Energy in the offices in Nevada. They have experts who work on weapon design, diagnostics, health physics, and information technology from various national laboratories and government agencies. So these people have day jobs, they do training, but then when an an emergency happens, they're all called into action and are sent to a particular place. So they're they're reportedly able to deploy up to 600 people at the event of a nuclear incident um, with helicopters and, and aircraft that have gamma radiation detection equipment, and they fly under very specialized FAA routes to get from one place to another very quickly. Um... Since 1975, the Nest team has been warned about 125 nuclear terror threats, and it was responded to 30 of them. All of them have fortunately been false alarms, but you can see how these people uh, work on a, on a very strong day-to-day basis. And you see some of these helicopters working in the film to detect the uh, bomb in New York City. Similar helicopters were used after the Boston Marathon bombing to determine whether or not the explosives that were set off were radioactive or not. Though those aerial radiation detectors are pretty good, as but as seen in the movie, it's really difficult to distinguish between natural radiation sources, such as uh, medical radiation at hospitals um, and actual real bomb threats. So one quote I'll mention here, Peter Zimmerman, he's a nuclear physicist who was formerly the chief scientist at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, put it as, background radiation makes the job more difficult than finding a needle in a stack of needles. I once heard it described as finding the drops from a glass of vodka in a thunderstorm, especially plutonium, which doesn't really have a strong gamma radiation emission compared to other things like cesium and cobalt. You can see how difficult it was to determine exactly where Dusan was with his radioactive backpack. But you'll see nest teams um, at big events such as the Super Bowl and the Olympics. They're often actually in disguise, so maybe you won't see them. They're as plainclothes people usually with special hidden radioactive uh, detection equipment. So it's basically planned to tell terrorists or whoever might use these weapons, you won't know where we are, we'll find you, and don't even try. So that's all the nuclear points that I think are worth talking about. Uh, But what about the movie as a whole? I will turn to our non-nuclear enthusiast here just as, as, as as a movie fan. What did you think about this? Well, it's been a number of years since I've seen this movie, so it was fun to kind of revisit 
some of those mid 1990s action movies. I actually owned this on VHS uh, quite a number of years ago, so Whoa, it, was, it was kind of a it was kind of homecoming for me. Uh, Someone be like, "Oh yeah, I remember watching this movie." Um, no, I mean, I I enjoyed it. Um, it. It's funny where previously when I bought the movie, you know, I liked it because it was you know, and this is when I was pretty young, but I was you know, it was a fun action movie, and I kind of disregarded a lot of the elements of realism that, you know, at the time I was pretty young and, you know, I didn't really need to understand, you know, some of the nuances of kind of nuclear issues or even, you know, the conflict, you know, uh, in Sarajevo. I I had no background knowledge on that at the time when I first saw the movie. So, you know, I kind of, you, you could easily as a moviegoer kind of push that to the side and just understand the general motivations of the villain, et cetera. So I, I think viewing it again, it was fun to – not fun, but it, it was in, more enjoyable as a audience member to go back and really kind of uh, as a more uh, educated moviegoer uh, um, enjoy that aspect of the f- overall film. Um, that being said, there are elements of the movie that I – took it face value and simply accepted as part of the overall plot that I think uh, now I've, I've come to – they bothered me a little bit more or jumped out at me. And this was just kind of the overall – you know, setting aside the whole issue of the government response, things like that, the one thing that's really stuck out for me is just how the plot depended on a couple of key developments that the movie never really explains how – they happened. One was just the amount of money that was required for this operation to take place. And it's one thing if you have like a comic book movie where there's some billionaire, like a Lex Luthor type person who can make things like that happen. But here you had what we see is generally not a wealthy, you know, Serbian official. Who, a, p- a piano teacher. Yeah, he's a piano teacher. So it's not, like, it's not like he has like a lair with cyborgs and billions of dollars to just throw around with to like get a nuclear weapon. Um, so I thought that was interesting. You know, it, it, it seemed a little puzzling to me of, oh, yeah, he was able to hire this general who's probably not cheap uh, to get this nuclear device and then also have the resources to get it out of the country and into New York City. They absolutely did not explain that. At like at all. Like all they all they do, they show one bag of cash where Kodorov kind of mentions he makes a joke about the new currency of U.S. dollars. But I mean, where it's a small yeah, know. it's a small bag. So maybe they paid him at most. What do you think that bag could have contained? Like a couple million bucks at most. It wasn't. I mean, two hundred million dollars. That'd be a that'd be a big briefcase. So, but but on top of that, that that was one element. But then the next element of the kind of unknown physicist educated at Harvard that they seem to just have in their back pocket, just setting up or having the resources to set up that kind of logistical operation. The more I thought about it going through the movie seemed even more puzzling to me. And then I realized the whole rest of the movie depended on those two two key aspects. And I I really liked the performances. I even liked the the action scenes. They were remarkably uh, realistic in my mind, but still entertaining. It almost reminded me of kind of the Jason Bourne type action movies where they're very low level, kind of in your face and not trying to be sprawling, you know, Avengers type mega violence. Um, But it was those kind of uh, plot linchpins or plot devices where I thought, oh yeah, you can make it a backpack bomb because you've got this guy that you found. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute. How did that ever come about 
Yeah, we talked about that a little bit in some of our previous episodes. I think it was True Lies as well as um, – I think it was – well, basically True Lies was our big one where it's very difficult to take a weapon that is designed to go off in a very particular way, usually from a missile dropping to a certain altitude uh, at a certain speed. There's tools within that uh, similar to your uh, iPhone that knows when it's facing one way versus another. Uh, it knows that it needs to go off in those certain ways, and it's designed to be able to do that. And then to simply have someone who's uh, a Harvard-trained astrophysicist to know then individual ways that a bomb is supposed to go off. One of the ways, at least in the United States, so maybe this is part of the question, is is in, in Russia these things might be less compartmentalized. But in the United States, there's people who know how a bomb is supposed to work. But they don't know the other components of it. The people, some people know uh, how it should be fired, such as the people working at the silos or dropping it from an airplane. But they don't know the internal components and how those things work. There's the people that know both of those two things are very, very rare and usually paid pretty well. But maybe this uh, in Pakistan individual happened to work in both of the two different fields and was able to to hardwire these things. But I think one of the uh, elements that we should uh, stress is that this is very, very difficult. It's not simply a matter of taking the core out and, and attaching a, uh, a digital clock to it. It's much more complex than that. Um, and it's something that maybe some people over-exaggerate uh, the uh, ease of which an individual can take a bomb, which is supposed to be used in one particular way and uh, can be used another. So I'll say that I think that that cues up nicely what I thought was one of the most offensive elements. Oh, yeah, this is part, this is part of our uh, nuclear most offensive. Nuclear most offensive was the Pakistani scientists doing surgery on a <laughs> Russian thermonuclear weapon in the back of a moving lorry, which I just thought was... I mean, if I was if, if I was in his shoes, I would have at least requested that we at least kind of stop, maybe pull off into a grove of trees <laughs> for for a period of time. Well, apparently they have two hundred million, so maybe they're paying them extra. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, add fifty million to it. Why not? You know, again, I, I don't I don't know what what the technical risks of, of of doing that sort of detailed deconstruction are, but it certainly it certainly seemed a. a a bit precarious uh, position to put uh, a, a scientist who, as you mentioned, according to the plot, really was not involved in an actual weapons program. So certainly an astrophysicist would understand the principles, but they could have at least gotten around that by just saying that he was from the, from Pakistan's nuclear program or, or something along those lines. But to assume that an astrophysicist would be okay with dismantling a nuclear weapon yeah. in the back of a moving vehicle. We can see how serious he was about it because he was chain-smoking the yeah, entire he, time, he too. He was chain-smoking the whole time, too. I, I, I just, I mean, that, that to me was a, bit, uh, was a bit much. Well, my most offensive uh, thing in this movie was something that even the writers and the people involved in this uh, rec- recognized, which was mostly just... What's the actual job of people that work at the NSC? Someone like a Jessica Stern or in her movie alter ego role of um, J- Julia Kelly. She has um, a job that basically is an interagency cooperation mission to take people from all these different agencies in the United States and to make them all focus on an individual problem. It's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of writing memos. It's a lot of um, convening and having people being on the same page, and especially people that have turf battles, trying to get everybody 
working towards the same objective. Uh, that doesn't necessarily involve uh, getting on an airplane and going to all countries in Europe, around and then into Turkey, and jumping around on helicopters. Like that's not really part of their mission, and they joke about that uh, as well. Can I do a, a, a quick uh, set of quotes? Um, from various uh, news clippings that I saw that Jessica Stern herself said. She says, I was spending most of my time at the NSC writing memos, running meetings, not chasing nuclear weapons around the world. In the movie, they take a bureaucrat and put her in the field. But come on, it's fiction. This is not a realistic portrayal of what my job was. I was a bureaucrat. I never chased bombs around the world. It's unrealistic to think an NSC official would be capable of dismantling a nuclear weapon. Nobody would ever go see a movie about my job because it would just be one meeting after the other. And when she met with representatives from DreamWorks and they said, all right, here's a sheet of paper. Will you sign away your life rights so we can make a movie about it? One of the funny Parts of that contract was also that they had the rights to make a theme park ride based on the movie. And the uh, the writer of that Washington Post story had some snark in there with was thinking, oh, what would it be like to have an NSC ride? It would basically be people that were tourists that would, would be going into a meeting. You have to sit while there's a deputy director of something drones on for 30 or 40 minutes. And then you're going to be asked to write a memo way less time than you should be able to do it. And basically it involves – how do you not nod off during this process and stay awake? So I don't know how long I'd wait in a line for that. It sounds a lot like what it would be like to wait in a line for a ride, let alone a ride itself. And somehow the Harry Potter rides were built before that. That just puzzles me. I don't know how that, uh... So much potential there for a theme park. Well, just because of the previous mention about the, the Bourne films, I think some action movies have kind of taken that to heart, and so they've somewhat removed that ringleader and rather than putting them in the field they've done you know a la jason Bourne, where there's always someone in the the you know kind of strategy room with all the computer screens and all the satellites kind of barking orders in real time over uh great distances at least at the outset they seem to be clooney's character and Kid, kidman's character seem to be pretty well integrated into the overall u.s decision making process in terms of when they were waiting for presidential authorization uh, to to kind of launch uh, this helicopter special forces mission to mm-hmm. to, to capture uh, some of the loose nukes that were in, on on Russian soil, um, and so at that point, you know, Kidman and Clooney were essentially under pretty strict guidance about what they're uh, about what they were allowed to do and and what their rules of engagement were, and. and Later on in the film, though, they seem to essentially, they're pre-delegated, essentially, authority to incur civilian casualties, uh, to do whatever is necessary, and, and it's not really clear where the chain of command is anymore. I think at one point, both Clooney and Kidman are screaming into a walkie, into the respective walkie-talkies, uh, ordering a sniper to essentially take a series of shots uh, that are that's going to, with high likelihood, re- result in, in women and children being being uh, killed in in, in crossfire, uh, and so it, it's not clear how how that authority right. has essentially become pre-delegated to them later in the movie versus at the beginning, where it's cl- clear that they don't have that authority. Well, you can see when, in our discussion about the Mirage Gold Nest. Um, interagency exercise that people from, say, the FBI or uh, even local law enforcement would, would be the ones saying that they have to be the, make, to be the ones to make the call. 
then there would be that kind of conversation that would be taking place even during a moment where the clock is ticking. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's that's a good point. I, I find it really interesting during the movie where the national security advisor asks Nicole Kidman's character, "Would you be willing to start a war?" over this if you're wrong. And I thought, no, that's not her call. That's your job as the national security advisor. So maybe... Well, to, to, even for him, it's to make a recommendation. Right. Like, he's, he's the one who even making the decision. Exactly. So I think at that point, uh, maybe the tuxedo, maybe the bow tie was a little too tight and he wasn't thinking right. Um, but you would certainly think that the rest of that uh, government apparatus would still actively be involved uh, in that decision-making process. But... I don't know. I, there's that's a that's a crazy one. One more thing I'd like to add that was nuts was the Joel mentioned this very quickly about the satellites that were looking at the convoys and all this stuff as it was happening, taking pictures live feed. It seemed like of the convoy. That's really not how satellites work. Uh, even for all the type of satellite technology that's very classified, I'm pretty sure in the 19, mid 1990s we couldn't take pictures, live video footage of license plates on cars uh, in the middle of of nowhere with perfect weather. Those kind of things are nuts, but those at least show what um, they were trying to do because those decisions may take place with maybe aerial surveillance from an airplane or a drone these days. But those those things, I think Tristan was right earlier on that this movie tries to tell a story other than just an action story, and these are the type of poetic license maybe we just have to let go of, uh, which is very difficult for me to do personally. Um, but if you want to look uh, at this movie – uh, in more detail in terms of the plot and elements involved, I recommend a couple different books in addition to One Point Safe by uh, Leslie and Andrew Cockburn that the movie is based off of. I would recommend John McPhee's 1994 book, The Curve of Binding Energy, A Journey into the Awesome and Alarming World of Theodore B. Taylor, who was a weapons designer who made some of the world's smallest nuclear weapons, such as the ones that were fired from artillery. Um, he also was a big, big promoter of nuclear-powered spacecraft, but when he retired, he was very freaked out about individuals, including terrorists, being able to build their own nuclear devices. So the book is a great look at these issues from someone who actually thinks it will eventually play out the ending to Peacemaker in real life. And I'd also recommend going back to our uh, other movie uh, podcast episode, the first one, True Lies, in the podcast description notes of that, or then at the end of that, we have other books on nuclear terrorism, both from people who think that this is a real-life threat and those that think it might be a little bit more exaggerated. So one of the last things I'd like to ask uh, our co-hosts here is what do you think about the movie as a whole? Forgetting about the necessarily the, the nuclear nonsense scenario, but it's just overall, what are your impressions? So the rating scale we'll, we'll use for this movie is laps in a swimming pool. One lap being, this is a really terrible movie, and five laps being like, this is an Olympic-sized, great film, one of the top all-notch movies. So, Joel, what do you think? I think I'll give it two laps. Um, I think a lot of credit goes to Mimi Later, who did a really good job kind of putting the story together and really kind of teasing out the motivations around the, the actors and their characters. Um, but I, I think because of some of the, the plot gaps, w- which were required, like you, they needed the gaps in reality in order to fabricate the story, um, that it, it held it back a little bit. But I think, um, the movie showed some raw potential of both the director, Mimi Later, who went on to do some really great stuff. You know, I'm a big fan of The Leftovers. Uh, and obviously Nicole Kidman and, and George Clooney went on to do some really great things. So, and even um, uh, Marcel Ayers uh, did a really good individual acting job. But I think, you know, story-wise, it was, it was a good movie. But like we said at the beginning, you know, not a great movie. So two probably at the most. Now, I recognize that is a lower rating than G.I. Joe Retaliation. <laughs> 
So I, I've gotten some questions from some listeners about how I gave G.I. Joe Retaliation such a high rating. Again, to clarify, that was a rating as far as in the context of G.I. Joe movies. That got a good rating. So this is slightly lower rating, but, um, you know, distinguishing would, the would two. Would you at least be willing to go on the record now and give G.I. Joe Retaliation a, a one in the overall context? I would put G.I. Joe under, yes, the, the I mean, Peacemaker. I'm Peacemaker, gonna, yeah. I'm not going to watch G.I. Joe Retaliation. But you should. Good, good, no, good decision. I mean, I, 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 I was willing to watch Peacemaker, but I'm not going to watch G.I. Joe Retaliation. But Tristan, what do you think about this one? How many laps are you going to give this one? So I'm going to give it two different ratings. So first, I'm going to agree that I think as an overall movie, it, it deserves two laps. Um, I, I felt as though there was a lot of potential that just wasn't realized. In particular, I really enjoyed the initial character development for the villain, uh, but I felt as though that just really, to me, just didn't really make it. Just didn't make much sense. There wasn't a clear reason why he felt the need uh, to spend money that was never explained where it came from on purchasing uh, a, a you know a stolen nuclear weapon to detonate it in New York. It, was it? to right some sort of injustice? Was it to kind of pay back the West for perceived wrong? I, I just, it, it just wasn't really fleshed out, and I felt like that was a really missed opportunity, especially given the, given the, the acting prowess. Uh, Unfocused was the word that I kept coming back to in terms of yeah. getting from point A to point B, but unfocused there, there in the middle. potentially beautiful scenes there, especially with that you know, piano motive that was, that was playing, and, and it just didn't really make any sense at the end of the day. Um, and, and I felt like that was a missed opportunity, given especially if you, if you look at some of the other movies that you guys were talking about, like True Lies, with a very stereotypical kind of Muslim extremist terrorist, uh, or some of these other movies in which the, the, the villain is just black box. They were trying to look into the black box of the villain, but it, they just didn't really kind of execute or fulfill on that mission. So in, in, in terms of the overall movie, I give it a two. It was certainly interesting at the beginning, you know, in so much as it kind of brought in some of those classic 90 tropes in terms of action movies mm-hmm. with the, the lasers and, 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 and all of that and a, a good old nuclear detonation. I'll, I'll give it a four, though, in terms of the, what I was mentioning earlier, the, the, the public service message in terms of trying to really draw a, a very large audience's attention to what is, you know, what, what was and continues to be a pretty serious threat, uh, both to U.S. national security, but, but, but also to, to others. Uh, and so I, I felt as though it took, it took the subject matter seriously, despite my grievances with, with the Pakistani dismantling, uh, you know, the, the weapon in the back of a moving truck. But I mean, I feel like it tried to tackle this subject matter seriously, and it tried, it tried to really drive home the gravitas of, of, of that threat vector. And so for that, I'll give it a four. I get that. Uh, I would probably um, split the difference between these because I, I get both of these points and say that it earned for me uh, three laps in a plutonium-contaminated pool <laughs> uh, at your local YMCA uh, because I did like the ambition of this movie, and I like the fact that it came from a real passion and uh, detailed understanding of these particular issues. It wasn't simply – a. if this movie was just a, a disgruntled – Russian commander stole a nuclear weapon and then tried to use it or tried to sell it off. And that was the story. Um, 
it would have just worked as a, as an action movie, but then it tried even further to go into an, an idea of really understanding um, what the, the 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 villain that we're supposed to hate. Uh, you may you know you may not still like his methods at the end, but there's at least a characterization with that. And I I can see why that was a bit of a bummer for a lot of people who were not probably expecting that to uh, happen in the movie, which may be why it didn't do as well as it did. Uh, you know, it made money, but it didn't uh, have a lasting imp- impact on individuals. Uh, so I think I would say about three, because uh, it's certainly more than what you normally would get uh, in these types of movies. But I'm, I'm looking forward to the future of the Nicole Kidman and George Clooney. I think they're going to go places, and I'm excited to see what they're they're going to do. I know there's a couple more George Clooney movies that we'll probably do on this. Uh, he did a movie in, in 2000 uh, called Failsafe, uh, which we'll think we'll definitely cover. He did it with his uh, e, former ER uh, co-star Noah Wiley. Maybe we'll have him on the podcast. If anybody knows his information and can get a hold of him, well, just let us know. Well, thanks very much uh, for Tristan for hosting us here at your your wonderful apartment, and we hope to have you on in the future. Yeah, thank you guys as well. It was a it was a, a pleasure kind of doing this on a long Fourth of July weekend. And, and let, let me just say that there's some there's some other great '90s movies that I think we could delve into. Unfortunately, uh, they don't deal specifically with the the nuclear motif. But if you're willing to kind of expand the boundaries to explore some of the kind of subjects that we touched on today in terms of public service, I would highly recommend the classic from Nick Cage. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm referring to Face Off. Oh, okay. Uh, in terms of uh, a real true public service in raising the awareness of the threat that bioweapons pose, uh, but also... Uh, uh, the need to be responsible about plastic surgery. Uh, and at the time, I, I just rewatched this movie recently. There's some early 3D printing techniques that are incorporated into that procedure. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, so if you guys in the future are looking to kind of uh, look at other advanced technology, I really feel Nick Cage has a, a lot to offer. Well, much like uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Tom DeVoe, we like to go off script too. So we've done TV shows before uh, with Star Trek. So it's, you know, even though it's called the Nuclear uh, Movie Podcast, uh, we will certainly uh, think about it because they are weapons of mass destruction. And I think they're worth talking about. Even Jessica Stern herself has talked in interviews after the movie came out that she works on nuclear things, but what really scares her are chemical and biological weapons in terms of non state use. So Let's. We will have you back on. Maybe we'll do an entire episode just on Nick Cage chemical weapons wet movies. I think that would or chemical Absolutely. biological weapon movies. Yeah. Although I'm just afraid it'll turn into a an hour long discussion about slow motion gunplay and doves, because that's usually how it works. And whether you can eat a peach for hours. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Supercritical, the nuclear movie podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or guests you want us to have on, or just to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're also on Twitter at nuclearpodcast. And email, the old-fashioned way, I guess, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program, we would definitely appreciate it if you would consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. This definitely helps us find new listeners and be able to grow the show, and we're also on YouTube. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And uh, the dubious honor of being a special guest, this is Tristan. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Happy 4th.